You're listening to Asia Pack Unwrapped, first broadcast on the 27th of September 2015 on Monocle 24. Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. From our studios in Tokyo, Hong Kong and Singapore, and right here at Midori House in London, this is Asia Pack Unwrapped, your unmissable weekly briefing from the world's most dynamic region. Coming up, Cambodia has emerged as a very attractive destination for investors in recent years, particularly among the Japanese. The story of Cambodia as a booming frontier economy, you know, is being told in, in Japan and the Japanese media, and that's drawing a lot of Investors who are facing, you know, slow growth in Japan, not many opportunities there. And, you know, they're trying their luck in Cambodia. We'll also check in at Melbourne's Windsor Hotel for the city's favourite high tea, as the luxury icon's future is still in doubt. We do about 24 different cakes, mousse cakes and raspberry tart and beautiful macaroons and a chocolate fountain with homemade marshmallow and it's absolute diabetic shock heaven. Plus, what role does architecture play in creating a cosy home? And we'll preview a new television from Samsung that comes with a high-end design. That's all to come on Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ, starting now. I'm Ben Ryland, plenty ahead of us as ever. First up, we'll turn our attention to Cambodia. We've been exploring a few of the differing facets that have contributed to the nation's emergence as a hotspot of investment in recent years. Now, another key factor in Cambodia's economic resurgence is Japanese investment. Lured by incentives such as the absence of restrictions on foreign capital for business ownership, cheap labour costs and a booming economy, Japanese investment into Cambodia has been on the rise in recent years. Kevin Panaya is a contributing writer for the Nikkei Asian Review. He popped into Midori House to discuss the backstory behind the growing trend. The Cambodian economy has been growing really, really fast for quite a few years now. But I think there's a growing sense that this sort of new middle class is really coming up at the moment. And that's happened in the last few years. Um, you know, and they have a demand for consumer goods. They have a demand for better experiences. You know, they want to eat out and so on. I mean, this is particularly in the capital, Phnom Penh. And this, I mean, it must be said, is still quite a small section of the population. You know, this is still quite a poor country. But I think, you know, Japanese investors were quite reluctant to come into Cambodia for a long time because of security fears. I mean, there was, you know, the civil war that only ended in the late 90s, and they were a bit more risk averse than their other Asian counterparts who came in a lot earlier. But I think at the moment, the story of Cambodia as a kind of booming frontier economy, you know, one of the last in Southeast Asia, along with Myanmar, you know, is being told in, in Japan and the Japanese media. And that's drawing a lot of investors who are facing, you know, slow growth in Japan, not many opportunities there. And, you know, they're trying their luck in Cambodia. Now, as you've stated, Chinese, Korean, Malaysian and Singaporean business has long been in Cambodia, but Japan has not traditionally been active in the region from business sense. Their investment has more been in the aid sort of realm. Why do you think that's changed? So like I said, the security element had a lot to do with it. I mean, in the early 90s, when the UN basically took over Cambodia for two years, Japan played a major role. And 
you know, there's a lot of goodwill stemming from that. They still donate a lot of money to the trial of the former Khmer Rouge leaders who led the genocide in the 1970s. And the Japanese were in other Southeast Asian countries in the 90s. You know, in the early 90s, they were in Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand. Later 90s, they were in Vietnam and the Philippines. And then now there's a sense that those markets have kind of been conquered in a sense, you know, they're in force. And Cambodia and Myanmar, you know, have a lot of opportunity. And there there weren't many Japanese firms there until the last couple of years. And I mean, there's still a, lot, a long way to go. Now, you were up until fairly recently based in Cambodia for quite a while. What are some of the changes that you think have taken place in Phnom Penh and perhaps in wider Cambodia as well, maybe just on an everyday level? So I lived there in 2008, and then I came back in 2013 and lived there up until very recently. And I mean, the change between 2008 and 2013 is huge. There's a lot more expats there. There's a lot of young Europeans, you know, who are faced with, you know, limited job prospects at, at home, a lot of French, a lot of Cambodian French who are coming back to Cambodia, starting businesses. You know, there are a lot of kind of small micro businesses, coffee shops, social enterprises being started by young people, both Cambodians and expatriates. So that's kind of created a sort of vibrant little scene in Phnom Penh. There's quite a lot of startups as well. And this has really been a big change over the last, I would say, five years or so. You know, there's restaurants popping up everywhere. There are more Cambodians eating at these places. There are young Cambodians, you know, flocking to hip sort of bubble tea shops influenced by South Korea and Japanese culture, you know, different things like that. I think there's a very visible change on the streets of Phnom Penh. And how do you think that the uh, more of the traditional-minded Cambodians might feel about this uh, this new investment coming into the country and perhaps leading to at least a slight cultural change? I mean, Cambodia as a whole and the government, so the elites, are very, very open to foreign investment. You know, they were reliant on aid for so long, and they still are to an extent, you know, quite heavily reliant on aid. But the government is very open to foreign investment. It's very easy to get a visa to go there as a foreigner. So I don't think they're really worried about these external influences. I mean, occasionally there'll be some scandalous story in the media and it will get blamed on Western influence, you know, disrupting Cambodian culture and so on. But I think as a whole, they do, they're very, very open to foreign investment. That was Kevin Ponaya there, contributor to Monocle and the Nikkei Asian Review. You're listening to Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. In the early stages of piecing together your perfect idea of a cosy home, which elements would you pounce on first? Decor is, of course, important. The colour and texture of the walls, window coverings, they're all integral. But above all of that is the architecture of a home. It's the architecture that gives a home its language and allows the other elements to talk to each other. Monocle's Kurt Lin from our Hong Kong bureau sat down with architect and interior designer Frank Lung at Via Architecture, where he discovered that the path to creating a cosy home calls for a little bit of thinking outside the box. We're a studio of just over five years, a very young design studio in Hong Kong. The studio name is Via, which means it's a path towards design and through architecture. Because of my background as an architect, we have both architectural design as well as interior design uh, projects in the studio. We're small, but numbering at 25 and growing and doing all sorts of things in Hong Kong. So what is the concept of coziness and cozy home to you and to your business? I think for us, coziness is not separable from having character. Having character, personality, 
is a very important thing to our design as well as the way we approach uh, our designs. As a studio, we run it very much like a large sort of family. The teams are very flat in structure. We're all very tightly knit together. In terms of the design that, that we do, especially in terms of uh, bespoke uh, homes, which we still do quite a bit, we do it every time in very tight collaboration with our clients because we understand at the end of the day they live there and they need to find that balance between what's beautiful and what's very much them. So that's the starting point of building a sort of a cozy concept. So what does it take for you to make a cozy home? I think spaces that are cozy would feel, first of all, would feel right. What do we mean by a space that feel right? It's almost like the design is not visible because the functionalities are all there and it's very well thought out, very well blended into the design rather than being sort of stylistic or trendy. Coziness has an element of being really accommodating. Accommodating meaning the functions could still shift in that space and it would probably grow with you. So it really it shows the personalities of the owners. Um, so our effort when we th- want to create this sort of cozy environment is really not to do it for the photo shoot, so to speak. We really want to do this great background where then you know the owners or the inhabitant can, can then shine with their own personalities. So many times I think owners are now looking for a lot of design references because design information is so accessible these days. And a lot of the times we get owners who actually give us a very visual brief. In these situations, we do try and sort of fish out even the edgier side of their personalities because we're not really trying to do a glossy magazine for their homes. To push them to explore certain sides of the personalities that are really real to them. And then we work around it. And this sort of curating, editing and collaboration with the client is, is really the fun part of doing this sort of bespoke home for us. Any differences between residential use and commercial use? For example, you did a great job in some restaurant as well. We've done, for example, a uh, office project. And again, offices have this trend of being smaller and more personalized, not like your whole floor thing. So each person gets a smaller unit. It's all sort of self-contained. And when we got that brief, we were like, that's not much different from a hotel. And so we actually turned it around and not try and give an office or commercial solution. Instead, turn it around in a very personal approach. So every person has his or her own door, which is integral with the access and the mailbox and a number. It's very much like a home. I think People are really looking for identification, personality, and not being the same as everybody else, not being generic. And I think that has a lot to do with what we're talking about today, uh, creating this sense of coziness. The building, which is being finished, you will see, uh, even from walking in from the street, you would not recognize it as an office building. You might actually wonder, well, what's this new hotel? And I think that's an approach that we, we use time and over again to bring this sort of really human element to every design, really. That was Kurt Lin at Monocle's Hong Kong Bureau in conversation with architect and interior designer Frank Lung. And of course, for more on the art of creating a cosy home, you can pick up a copy of our latest book, The Monocle Guide to Cosy Homes. Head to monocle.com for details. 
You're listening to Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. Still to come, we'll sit down for high tea at Melbourne's Windsor Hotel and we'll preview Samsung's new design savvy TV. Thinking of starting your own business? Want to make your company a better place to work? Keen to sharpen those ambitions? Or just like some nicer business cards? Well, we know a handsome primer that will take you from fledgling firm to established brand. The new Monocle Guide to Good Business is a 300-page-plus book packed with inspirational stories, wise advice, places to locate your new HQ, and, of course, great photography and illustrations too. Head to monocle.com to order your copy now or visit any of our stores. The Monocle Guide to Good Business is a book that will show you how to do a job you really love, create a modest dynasty, use your hands and your brain, and even take your dog to work. Come on, it's time for a change. I'm Ben Rylan, and this is Asia Pack Unwrapped on Monocle 24, in association with ANZ. Now, there's no doubting the historical significance of Melbourne's Windsor Hotel. The 19th century icon of luxury is Australia's only surviving Grand Victorian-era hotel. It's played host to some of the world's most glamorous names, including Vivian Leigh, Gregory Peck, Lauren Bacall, and even King George VI and his wife. But a controversial plan to add a skyscraper on top of the historic building has hit a roadblock with the state's planning authorities. If the redevelopment plan can't go ahead, it's likely that the hotel will close its doors. The Indonesian group that owns the hotel has already begun offloading some of its other nearby sites, suggesting that they may be trying to free up some cash ahead of the planning decision. Yet while its future hangs somewhere in planning limbo, it's business as usual inside the so-called Duchess of Spring Street. And as anyone who's lucky enough to pop in for the famous high tea at the Windsor will tell you, those inside are clearly a cake-loving and champagne-sipping crowd. Stephen A. Russell joined in proceedings for a chat with renowned chef Philippa Sibley, the queen of dessert who, believe it or not, doesn't have much of a sweet tooth herself. They spoke about reinvigorating the city's favourite high tea. I wrapped up a, a restaurant in the city called Prefix, which was, it was a year pop-up, so it was, it was a themed restaurant. We did uh, 12 different menus. That wrapped up and I was at a bit of a loose end. I had been approached by the owner, Artie, of the Windsor several times before. Um, he's been sort of dangling carrots for me for a bit and I thought, well, this is the ideal opportunity. There's a, a lot of other um, hotels and pastry chefs around town have been doing high tea, it's for some reason high tea is all of a sudden du jour again, you know, it's kind of happening again, which it's lovely. I mean, it's such a beautiful kind of tradition and teas as well. There's so many beautiful teas available now as well. So it's something that's kind of, it was a serendipitous sort of thing for me. And I live very close by. It's a lovely walk for me through the Treasury Gardens to get to work. And yes, I started in May and it hasn't been a piece of cake, pardon the pun. Um, (laughs) You know, as with all hotels, quite often there's staff members who have been here for a long time. So I've had to kind of gently mould and chip away at some bad habits, I suppose you'd call it, but, and, and just to modernise things a little bit. Fantastic. So, yeah, for, for everything, I like things to be very, very, very fresh, very seasonal. The seasons in Melbourne are very important. I find it quite romantic, actually, that you can only get, you know, mangoes when they're in season, unlike, you know, the UK or the States where you can get 
stuff from everywhere all the time. So there's, you can get raspberries all year round, you can get you know, peaches all year round, whereas in Melbourne it's seasonal, and I love that. I think it's really quirky, and when cherries are out, it reminds Melburnians of the races, and, you know, so it's quite... That's what I'm trying to work into the menu. We're using blood oranges at the moment, for example, which mm. are high season. So, yeah, it's fun. It's really fun, and we try to keep it quirky. And so tell me a little bit about the menu itself and what you've, you've done and you're working, I understand, with Joel as well here? Yeah, well, actually, we're kind of a polar opposite ends of the of the kitchen. It's a huge kitchen. It's quite Dickensian, actually. <laughs> um, but, um, Joel, well, Joel's in charge of the the a la carte section. I'm, I'm really just working in the pastry section, yep. which is afternoon tea during the week, which is the stand, which has the sandwiches, the scones and the little ditties you know, the little little sweet ditties in the in the centre. But on the weekend, totally different story. Yep. So on the weekend, we do a huge buffet. So the stand's slightly different. It's more savoury, so people get that first. And then they can get up with their plate and absolutely pig out. I think we do about 24 different cakes, mousse cakes and raspberry tart and, you know, all sorts of different... Like we do a little Windsor mess, which is like an eaten mess with rhubarb and stuff. And, beautiful macaroons and a chocolate fountain with homemade marshmallow and it's absolute diabetic shock heaven you know it's amazing people love it so that's the weekend um is it a so bit it of keeps a us on our toes derby do you it, it, kind of see it yeah. destroyed at yes the end? and we have to re- we have to replenish a couple of times it's quite the operation but it's oh, it's my favorite part of the week i love it i mean obviously we start prepping for it you know, the day after, on Monday, we have to start prepping yep. to get ready for the, for the weekend again. But it's a really nice cycle. The week goes very fast. <laughs> that was Stephen A. Russell there, enjoying the famous high tea at Melbourne's luxurious icon, the Hotel Windsor. Eugene Ye is a respected Taiwanese designer, known for his work in the hospitality sector in the city of Taipei. He's also a hotelier and owner of the stately Hotel Cabochon in Bangkok. He sat down with our Singapore bureau chief, Nolan Giles, to discuss one of his most ambitious projects to date, Maji Maji Square in Taipei. Here, he tells Nolan how he worked with the city's government to reactivate a major unused site in the Yuan Shan district, providing fresh opportunity for food and beverage and retail entrepreneurs. So this stadium never used, and actually government gave the space another life, which is not very, very successful. So even this space next to subway station, 200 meters, but nothing can be happened. So before me, maybe two years empty. So I go to discuss with the government. I say, I want to do something here, but not in your original plan. Can I change them? And government asked me, what do you want to do? I say, I want to do this, I want to do that. And say, the government asked me, who is going to pay that? I say, me, myself, me and my partner, we like to make Taipei more fun. So in the end, now I think we are very, very happy to see the clouds in there. And is this square a reflection of a broader movement in Taipei? Are there a lot of unique hospitality ventures opening up? Yes, because uh, since um, a lot of travelers, much, much more travelers come to Taiwan after, I think after 2000, because before year 2000, I never see my the airport in Taiwan being busy. But after 2004, 2003, the airport start to see many, many tourists, and sometimes busier than 
in Bangkok Airport. And you see a lot of hotels. That's why I got a lot of hotel jobs in Taiwan. And I think you need to prepare more interesting place for the tourists to go, to see. And is Taiwan, as a country to do business in, becoming a much better and, uh, I guess, much more prosperous nation to work in? I, I actually encourage many, many young people not to work for anyone, just work for yourself. Think something you, you are interested in and find few friends together and do something yourself. Because since they, the big company not paying you enough, so why not trying something when you're still young, still have the chance? And are people doing that? Is there a strong entrepreneurial yes, community yes. there? That, that, that's why I see people, they don't have a lot of money, but they have idea. They make their shirts, they make their t-shirts, they make their bags themselves, but they don't have place to show them. Of course, yes, they can go, go for online shopping. I'm an old school guy, so I still like them to have their own shops. That's why I prepare like 30 out, very small, tiny space for these young people. You bring your products. I prepare everything. The space, the cabinet, the cashier machine, everything for you, ready. You just bring your products and in very, very reasonable price. Since I, I got the space from the city, so I make the young people have space to show people their products. And that's create a lot of young people to make more things. That was Nolan Giles there in conversation with Eugene Ye. This is Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. Up next, we'll examine the process of designing a high-end television. Well, we're nearly at the end of this week's show, but before we take off, let's settle in for a bit of telly. The humble television often forms the focal point in living rooms. But have you ever asked yourself just how much real design acumen goes into creating a TV set? In the race to have the biggest screen, recent years have seen some designs fall victim to garishness. Let's be honest, we've all encountered those people who seem oh so proud of their enormous monstrosity that promises cinema quality in the home, but looks as though a black hole has opened up and is about to swallow the sofa. Well, that's where a couple of Paris-based designers saw an opportunity to scale things back a little and bring high-end design concepts to the small screen. Ronan and Erwan Barulak have teamed with Korea's favourite electronic maker, Samsung, to develop the Serif TV, an aesthetically pleasing alternative to the modern bigger-is-better mantra that's designed to complement the modern living room, not dominate it. Unveiling the project at this year's London Design Festival at Somerset House, I sat down with Erwan to discuss the concept behind the design. We should not forget that even 15 years ago, TV was a really important feed for us because it's where we would get information live and all those things. So now TV, I've, I would say, lost that evidence and also they get totally overruled by uh, all the mobile technologies but at the end of the day I mean we all went on to uh, watching movies on uh, tablets laptops just because it was easier for us to get the content from there but at the end if you take it for the pure viewing experience it starts to be a nonsense so I think the big difference is 
TV are not meant to be moved all the time. TV are probably for a longer watching. So they have to be, to my point of view, a little bit more quiet. And I had a quite interesting remark of someone telling me that I was just showing the TV and so I was going onto Netflix and just uh, having a cartoon for kids. And the TV has a quite delicate frame and you can get it in white, dark blue or red. But into the white frame, the cartoon for the kid was so, in a way, settling in nicely. And this woman told me, ah, it's strange. It just looked like the shape of the TV itself is, as a kind of parental safety. And then I thought it in the reverse way, through that, all those edgy black a shiny edge TV, just a nonsense just to show a cartoon to a kid. So we just try to make a, a really decent frame for consuming pictures and also dealing with the UI too. I think everything is up to the language. Whatever you do, design is here to shape culture, to give a shape to culture. And if you give the wrong shape, then you'll get the wrong culture. One of the words you used to, well, two of the words you used to describe some of the existing designs of televisions over the past few years were edgy and uh, masculine. And I think that your design certainly steps away from that. Can you tell me a little bit about how you envision the design for this television and maybe, maybe future models that are aiming towards a slightly different crowd, maybe aiming more to fit into the existing aesthetic of people's living rooms rather than sit there as something that has to be designed around and has to be moved around? Well, I really feel like you can see TVs a little bit like cars. Most of the time, cars are designed by people that are fascinated by cars. But then, at the end of the day, I think car design should take much more in consideration the ones that are not driving the car. It's just that we made it with our uh, own knowledge. I mean, we do furniture all the time, objects all the time. So, of course, we grew into this language. It's that's what we like. Furniture is, is a quite important thing because it stays in your life for quite a while. It's here, it's present, and I think it has to be subtle enough. Of course, it has partially to change the rule of your home, but it also has to connect with uh, your environment. So it has to connect with the fact that, anyway, you have old plaster walls, there's been some painting. It's not that everything should be sleek and neat into your home. And so I think in furniture, we always think that we have to respect what is there before, and we need to kind of be part of this. And then this new thing that we bring is also gonna get old. So I'm never thinking into a short perspective. Sometimes I'm asked, so is there any new tendency for this year design? I don't even understand the question because I think the real movement happening into decades time, it's where you really see the shift, the movement. And that's a positive way about design. It's not like fashion that would change all the time. We are reactionary in a good way. We are also seeking for probably, I would say, more universal value because we can't stick with the detail of the time because 10 years after this detail would have no more relevance. Uh, so what we did again for the TV as, as a kind of 
transcending time approach. So it's why it's connecting to the past and hopefully it's connecting to the future. So a lot of people say, ah, it looks like the old, but it might become the new. That was Erwan Barulek there, one of the designers behind Samsung's new Serif TV. That brings us to the end of this week's edition of Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. The show was produced by our studios in Tokyo, Hong Kong, and Singapore, and by me, Ben Rylan, here at Midori House in London. Nina Norick was our editor, and Kurt Lin was our researcher. We're back at the same time next week. That is, of course, 7am Monday in Sydney, 9am in Wellington, and 2200 hours on Sunday here in London. Listen again and find out more at monocle.com or tune in via iTunes, SoundCloud or the Monocle app. This is Asia Pack Unwrapped on Monocle 24 in association with ANZ. Until next time, I'm Ben Ryland. Enjoy your week. Music